Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together in this place today. We thank you for the freedom that we have to look into your word, to declare your word, and even the freedom that we still have to live according to the truth that is contained within your word. We ask that you would help us to truly understand your word, to apply it to our lives. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in and among us today to convict of truth, Lord, to show us where we need to walk and how we need to walk. And Lord, that we would not just have that conviction, but also have the willingness, uh, the desire, and the enablement to walk according to that. And I just pray that you would grant me wisdom and understanding as I proclaim your word this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can hold your fingers in Colossians chapter 1 there for a couple minutes. We will be reading from verse 1 to the end of verse 8. However, just by way of introduction, last week we began our series, and it's not going to be a mini-series, it's going to be a fairly lengthy series in the book of Colossians. After having done an introduction of the book, we only got as far as verse 1 and 2 by way of of a message, and actually just looked at one sentence or part of a verse in verse 2. We're going to continue to look at the book of Colossians. We looked at the context of the book. We saw that it was written by Paul the Apostle. It was written to a struggling or to the struggling church in Colossae, and it declares the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It declares the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It declares the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. And I want that to be established in our mind. That is the theme of the book as we work our way through it. It speaks of Jesus Christ and who he is. The fact that he is great, the fact that he is sovereign, the fact that he is creator, the fact that he was before time, the fact that he holds all of eternity in his hands. It speaks of the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It was written to the church in Colossae, which we saw was a struggling church, was on their last leg or their last breath, so to speak, and that within four to six years after this book was written, the town actually would have been destroyed by earthquake and never rebuilt. We saw that not only was it uncertain in Colossae due to their physical conditions or geographic location, but it was uncertain due to the spiritual uncertainty that was in Colossae, that there were many deceptions, that there were many lies, that there were many false theologies that had been presented and were being followed or at least looked at. And to this uncertain church in Colossae, Paul writes to them that they can be certain, they can know where they stand as they stand in Jesus Christ. We saw all that from that phrase, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. We saw from that verse that those who were in Colossae that were part of the church, the believers, could have their certainty and their stability, their strength. They could be secure because they are in Jesus Christ, regardless of being in the world. It is possible to live in certainty in Jesus Christ. To those who are saints and faithful brethren, and that is the standing of those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It's not something to be earned or to be merited. It is a standing of those who have had the shed blood of Jesus Christ applied in their life. Saints and faithful brethren. And regardless of whether it's in Colossae or in Nampa or in Peace River or in any place in the world at any time, because the world is a place of uncertainty, theologically speaking at least, We can be certain of who we are, of where we stand, as we stand in Jesus Christ. So we saw that there is certainty in uncertain times. And today I want to see that 
we can know, we can see, we can understand, we can believe the certainty of the gospel. So the title of the message this morning is The Certainty of the Gospel, and we're taking that from Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 to the end of verse 8, but we'll read from verse 1 to the end of verse 8 in Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for, the, for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Colossians chapter 1 is a difficult passage to understand. It contains an incredible amount of information in these few verses. Matter of fact, an incredible amount of information in so few words. As the title of this series declares, this is about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And Paul, in the first two chapters of this book, gives as concise an explanation of the preeminence of Jesus Christ as is possible. However, the truth of Christ's supremacy, of his preeminence, is a topic that honestly will take us all of eternity to grasp. So it is understandable that this declaration by Paul to us in these first couple chapters is difficult, it is complex, it is hard to fully grasp. In the 29 verses of chapter 1, there are several themes or breakdowns of thought. However, the overall thought carries through. This is one complete thought in chapter 1. And it is speaking about Jesus Christ, about who he is. But there are minor breakdowns or themes within it. They're just hard to figure out exactly what they are and hard to separate them from the rest because it has such a continuity of thought. Matter of fact, it has so much of a continuity of thought of one theme that the translators rightly struggled with making any breaks in this passage. This morning, I'm going to brush up on your English a little bit. And I had to do the same this weekend as I was preparing this message. A conjunction, you're all familiar with that, right? Is a joining word or words. And it can join other words, it can join phrases, or it can join clauses. A simple conjunction would be and, but, yet, for, so, or, etc. Then there's subordinating conjunctions, which are like after or if or because. And then there's Correlative conjunctions, which are like both and, or either or. Okay, so that's what a conjunction is. It joins. When you read these, first 20, or these 29 verses of chapter 1, almost every verse begins with a conjunction. It maintains the theme. It maintains the thought. It doesn't separate it or break it down. Real quickly, verse 4, since. Verse 5, because. Verse 6, which. Verse 7, as. Verse 9, for. Verse 16, for. Verse 17, and. Verse 18, and. Verse 20, and. Verse 21, and. He begins, he lays out the topic, and then he says, and. I want to tell you something else about this truth. And, 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 and therefore. And if such is the case, then this must also be the case. Maintaining the theme all the way through it. 
So there's at least 14 verses in these 29 that begin with a conjunction, at least, because I'm not qualified to actually count them, and English is not my strength, honestly. But at least 14. And then some of the other verses, of the other 15 verses, or however many there are left, uh, at least half of those actually begin in the middle of a sentence. So you don't need a conjunction, because he hasn't broke the thought anyways. This is one complete thought. Now, like I said, there are some minor themes in this. But it is difficult to break down and to figure out exactly what passage we can look at today and what can we take away from the first few verses. I took verse 3 to 8 because as it happens in the New King James Version, that's one sentence. And we're going to break down one sentence and see what it says. As a matter of fact, in the breakdown of this passage, you have to remember that in Greek there are no periods, not per se. There are definitely breaks, but there's no periods. So they had to, in breaking it down into English and translating it into English, they had to put some kind of pause here, otherwise no one would know where to stop. But in the King James Version, there are only six periods in these 29 verses. There's only six full stops. In the American Standard Version, there's seven. I think in the New King James Version, there's 14. So each translation newer that we get, we're getting more, trans- or more periods, more stops, because that's how we read. The NIV actually has 20 of them. We aren't really used to the style of writing that is contained here, and so it's difficult for us to understand. However, for strict translation here, strict translation going from the Greek to us for English, the fewer full stops, the more accurately translated Paul's expression of thought would be. So having said that, we're going to take one sentence this morning and try to wrap our minds around one sentence. And actually, I had said that in preparation, trying to figure out exactly where I was going, and it's actually going to take two sermons, because I only got halfway through that sentence and had to, well, I came to so many pages that we would have had to be here for an extended period of time. This Sunday and next Sunday, we will look at this one sentence of verse 3 to 8. So I want to reread verse 3 to 8. Paul's saying, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. That's a rereading of it. Now I'm going to try to simplify that so that we can see what the theme is. And this would be my, not a translation, my simplified version of this sentence. We give thanks to God since we heard of your faith and love because of your hope, which you heard of in the word of the truth of gospel, which has come to you since you heard and knew the grace of God in truth as you learned from Epaphras. That would be my rendition And it leaves an awful lot out. I'm just trying to simplify it so that we can see what the central theme of this one sentence is. In looking at these verses in their simplified form, we are able to grasp the clear theme of these verses. The theme of these verses is not thanksgiving, as many have supposed that it is. The theme of these verses is the gospel. The gospel or the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That is what the people in Colossae had heard. It says that at the end of verse 5, which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The theme is the gospel. It is also known and defined in verse 6 as the grace of God in truth. He's speaking of the same thing here. The gospel is the grace of God in truth. 
Last week, we looked at certainty in uncertain times. Their certainty in ours is that all who are in Christ are saints and faithful brethren. Today, I want to look at the basis of that certainty, the cause of our certainty, the cause of our being in Christ, and do so by looking at the certainty of the gospel. We've received and believed the gospel, the grace of God in truth, and have therefore called out upon the name of Jesus Christ, which is why we can be called saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So today I want to look at the certainty of the gospel. I'm going to do it a little bit differently because normally I start at the beginning and I work my way through to the end. That's a typical way that a sermon is done, an expository sermon anyways. We're going to look at it backwards, actually. We're going to start in verse 7, actually, or verse 8, and work back to verse 3. If you were to read this passage backwards, starting in verse 7, with the understanding that the theme of this passage is the gospel, then the the verses would read this way. So we're doing it backwards. The gospel, brought by Epaphras, is bringing forth fruit in you, since you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, that's 6, part B. The gospel is, in 6A, bringing forth truth wherever it goes. Verse 5, the gospel has given you certainty or hope in an eternal inheritance. And in verse 4, this hope, which is brought about by the gospel, has stirred you up to faith and love. Verse 3, for which we, that is Paul and Timothy, are thankful. Does that make sense? We worked it backwards there, looking at it from the centrality of the theme of the gospel. He's speaking of the gospel here. So if that made sense, and I hope it did, then by way of an outline, we're going to look at three points, starting in verse 7, or verse, actually verse 7, yes, looking backwards. We'll see here, the title of the message is, The Certainty of the Gospel, the fact that it is truth, it is a fact. We see in verse 6 that it is the grace of God in truth. That's what the gospel is. We'll see in verse 5 that the gospel produces hope. And we'll see in verse 4 that hope produces faith and love. I think we're actually only going to make it through the first point. We're going to look at the certainty of the gospel as the title, and that the gospel is the grace of God in truth. Grace, if it was to be defined, is the merciful kindness of God. The gospel is a message of grace. The certainty of the gospel is wound up in the grace of God, in the certainty of the grace of God. It is his merciful kindness. It is his goodwill and favor to man. And grace is summed up in Jesus Christ. The fact that God became flesh, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, which we could not pay, and rose again from the grave, conquering sin and death. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the grace of God in truth, that Jesus Christ became flesh. God became flesh and died in our place. That is the gospel. That is the grace of God in truth. It is the expression of God's grace. God's grace towards unworthy mankind. Unworthy mankind has been offered the righteousness of Jesus Christ through the shed blood of Christ to enable us to enter into right relationship with God. That is the grace of God in truth. In truth, specifically here in verse 6, is actually how they must enter into that grace. 
It doesn't define that grace, but it's saying this is how you must enter into it. You must acknowledge that it is truth. You must believe that this is the truth. But it is also the manner of grace. God's grace is true. It has been expressed. It has been demonstrated. It is actual reality. The grace of God is actual. It's not figurative. It's not some theory. The grace of God is real, and it has been demonstrated. It has been expressed. The word became flesh, the expression of God in Jesus Christ. The grace of God is true. The gospel is certain. It is a reality. It is an actuality. And and in saying that, I'm not saying that because it is true, it will be appropriated by all. There's a difference between saying God's grace is true for every person or in every person versus God's grace is true. The grace of God has come in Jesus Christ. It has been made available to all, absolutely. That is an actuality. That is a reality. It is expressed in Jesus Christ. That is beyond question. It is certain. I want that to be established first and foremost in our mind. The certainty of the gospel, that it is the grace of God in truth. It is absolute and it is true. We see that from verse 6. But we also see in verse 6 that this grace of God can be heard and be known. Remembering here, we're working backwards. So we're talking about the gospel. We're saying that it is the grace of God in truth. But as we go backwards in verse 6, it says, is bringing forth fruit, that's the gospel, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So we know, first of all, that it is certain. It is the grace of God in truth. But we also see here within this verse, and it's not usually applied that way, but we see the fact that the grace of God can be heard and it can be known. And that is important for us as well. We say that we have believed Jesus Christ, absolutely. We've accepted his grace, absolutely. But then we also must be reminded of the fact that this grace of Jesus Christ, this gospel, can be heard and understood and received. Because without that, why would we share? Why would we witness? But he gave us this gospel of truth so that it could be heard by those around us. It is majorly important that this grace can be heard and known. What merit would the gospel be if it couldn't be heard, understood, and received? It says of those believers in Colossae that they believed, or sorry, that they heard the gospel, they heard the grace of God and truth, and the inference is here that with that hearing there was understanding. There must be understanding, hearing, and understanding of the word of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and preaches his great message. And it says in verse, chapter 2, verse 37, Now when they heard this, when they heard the preaching of the gospel, the truth of God's grace in Jesus Christ, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is what happened in Colossae. They heard the grace of God and truth. They heard the gospel and they were cut to the heart. Romans chapter 10, very well-known passage, speaking about how the message of the gospel works. In verse 13 through to 15, it says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? That is taking the form of a question. But if we were to turn that question around, and we can turn it around, because we are the sent ones to preach the gospel so that others could hear, and by hearing believe, and believing, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We know that it has been turned around. It's no longer in the form of a question. And why do we know that? Because Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In other words, that last portion about how shall they go unless they are sent? Well, we have been sent. What have we been sent to do? You've been sent into the world. You've been sent to preach the gospel. You've been sent to preach it so that people may hear it. Why should they hear it? Because in hearing it, they may believe it. And by believing, they may call upon the name of God and by calling out to God, be saved. That passage ends, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord. So it starts with that, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There must be hearing of the word. There must be hearing of the gospel for men and women to be saved. You heard it at some point in your life, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You heard the message of the gospel. You heard it spoken in some form or format. You believed so that you could call upon his name and be saved. Now your job, your responsibility, if you truly have believed it and accepted it and called upon his name, is to speak it, to tell it, so that others can call out and be saved. At the end of that passage in Romans 10, it actually says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't say in that verse that everyone who hears will be saved, but it does say that without hearing, no one can be saved. You have to hear the word of God, to believe the word of God, to call out upon the God who can save you. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The people of Colossae heard the certainty of the gospel, And he's speaking of this because he's getting ready to refute all that is untrue. He's starting off in this beginning chapter by saying, the gospel that you heard is truth. It is the grace of God and truth. So everything else that you heard that doesn't line up with it is a lie. They heard the certainty of the gospel. It is hearable and understandable. That is God's means of bringing people to salvation. We have heard it, believed it, and called out. Now we must share it. It also says here that they knew it. It says they heard and knew it. That is the aspect of believing, of faith, of knowledge that is experiential of God's grace. It comes by hearing. As I mentioned before, not all who hear it will know that grace personally. They may not all know that grace intimately. That is not our responsibility. We are not responsible to save them. We are responsible to bring the message of salvation to them. That aspect of saving is God's work. In Acts chapter 2, it was God that cut to the heart, but it was by the hearing of the word. It is God who will take them from that hearing to believing. But these people in Colossae, they heard and they knew God's grace. You have heard and know God's grace. It is hearable and, if that's even a word, and knowable. The word of God, others must hear it. Understand it. And it's between them and God to respond to it. But our responsibility to bring it. And I absolutely believe 
that when the word of God is heard, people will respond. Not everyone, but people will. That is what he has promised. It's by hearing the word. The certainty that we base our Christian walk upon, the certainty of being in Jesus Christ, is the certainty of the gospel, the absolute fact of the grace of God reaching down to you and I. The grace of God in truth is hearable and knowable as you have heard and knew. Says this gospel in verse 6, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you. He's saying to them, it brought forth fruit among you because you responded in belief. You heard it. You received it. You believed and you called out upon Christ. But it's also bringing forth fruit in all the world. Wherever the gospel is preached, it produces fruit. It is God's means of bringing people to himself. So people will hear, they will believe, and they will call upon God. I didn't say all, but they will. People will. Do you believe that to be true? Was Paul lying here? He says, the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world, is bringing forth fruit. Preaching of the word of God will bring forth fruit. Paul, though in prison in Rome, was constantly receiving word of the spread of the gospel. He was firsthand witness himself of the effect of preaching. Preaching of the gospel, God's grace and truth, is the means God has chosen to bring salvation to the world. He has not chosen other means. Now, I know there are those who say that the gospel of Jesus Christ came to somebody by an angel, and that is possible. But it will always bring them to somebody else who would preach or proclaim the word. It is by preaching, by us, by you and I, going into all the world and preaching the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God has chosen to use the spoken word of the gospel to be the method of salvation. And it works. It worked in you if you've trusted him as Lord and Savior. And it also works in all the world. You see, the message is certain. It's absolutely true. The message is that Jesus Christ died for sinners. It is the gospel. It is the grace of God in truth. So it is certain. It is true. It is literal reality. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That is the grace of God. And that truth is so certain, it is so true, that God has chosen to use weak, frail, uncertain vessels to reveal that truth to others. And he has promised that when it is revealed, when it is preached, people will hear, people will believe, and people will call upon God. So why don't we see it happening around us right now? Why don't we see it taking place the way that God has described it as, having, or as it should take place? We've received it. We've been sent. 
If we preach, they will hear. If they hear, they will believe. If they believe, they will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Only one part will ever break down in that list. Us preaching. We've been sent. We've got the message. God's promised. You give them the message, they'll hear it. If they hear it, they'll believe it. If they believe it, they'll call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one part that breaks down is us being willing to preach it. That is our primary calling in life. And I know that we're getting a little off track here from exactly where this passage is going. But it's the centrality here of the gospel. And I couldn't, in reading it frontwards or backwards, look at that and miss that word. They heard and knew. You have heard and known this gospel, this, the grace of God in truth. And it's brought forth fruit in you as it is also in the whole world, wherever it goes. We're jars of clay. Scripture is very clear about that. But God delights in that. Why? So that the glory may be of him, that passage says, and not of us. So that when you, in your brokenness, in your weakness, prayerfully in your humility, take the word of God and share it with others. When you become the vessel in God's hands, the glory all belongs to him. That's the way he designed it. He didn't expect, anticipate, prepare you to be perfect before you went and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. He glories in your imperfection in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because that way he's the one that receives all the credit. So it's real simple. There's this one link in there, and that's us preaching it. I know that I've preached messages on this, and maybe that's, I'm not sure if that's becoming a theme in my life or not, but challenging God's people to share the word. And as I mentioned, I couldn't read past that without seeing that aspect of having heard and known, especially to those who have heard and known. We have heard. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you know the truth of the gospel. You know the truth of God's grace because you have experienced it in your own life. What's that song? I know because he lives within my heart. You ask me how, you ask me how I know this. He lives within us. So we know this grace of God in truth. We've heard it, we've known it, we know it. Now our responsibility is to take it and share it. I'm thankful that I can say as Paul did, you have heard the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit. It is bringing forth fruit in you and through you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. May it continue to bring forth fruit in you and through you in all the world. Today we've seen the certainty of the gospel, that it is the grace of God in truth, that it is hearable, it is knowable, and we have responsibility, therefore, to share it with the world. And we'll begin to see that it actually produces something, not just as we, as we share it with the world around us, but it produces something in us that enables us to share it and to live according to it. It produces within us the hope, hope of an eternal dwelling, which Paul also says is incorruptible and doesn't fade away, prepared for you in glory. He says it produces hope, and out of that hope flows faith in Christ and love for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, that you came the pure, spotless Lamb of God, 
to be the sacrifice for sin. That you willingly went to the cross in our place. That you died to pay the penalty. The penalty for our sin. The penalty that we could not pay. What incredible truth. We thank you that it is certain. That it is absolute. We thank you that you didn't just die and stay in the grave. But that you rose in victory over sin. Over death. Over the grave. We thank you that you have ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And that you are interceding for us. We thank you that 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 means that we are enabled to be in Jesus Christ because of you. We are also able to share you with the world around us, not because of our strength, but because you have called us and you have enabled us to do that. God, help us not to shirk our responsibility, but help us to see the wonder of salvation, the wonder of your grace, and help us to just have a passion, a burden, to share that with the world around us. May we not be able to keep silent. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.